Men on Board, episode 27. Today, the category is Hidden Movement. We're going to be talking about Spectre Ops and Nuns on the Run. In our broad review, we're going to do a reflection on one year of podcasting. Hello, and thank you for downloading Men on Board. My name is Aaron. This is Josh. Jameson. And I'm Matt. And we are all back together for our one year anniversary episode. We are. It feels so long. (laughs) I feel like we needed like special intro music. Yeah. Like just yeah. like fa- yeah. like just like generic fanfare uh, horns blowing intro music for this we'll, week. We'll play the theme song backward and then I, yeah. <laughs> the, I uh, think like maybe two, like two a tr- year is pretty exciting. So if this is your first time listening, thank you. Uh, we are a podcast by four friends that talk about uh, the board games we like to play, and we have a whole year's worth of back catalog for you to go back and listen to. So check those out. So today, because it's our one-year anniversary, we wanted to go back to our roots and go back to the hidden movement category. Uh, Like I kind of said in the past, as we keep doing this show, because we have a very narrow format, we have to play around with that format. And this is another time of us doing that and going back and revisiting a category. Although the only thing we're doing is just talking about two different games within that category. (laughs) Yeah, but it made finding recommendations harder. Yeah. And we did not listen to the old episode before making these recommendations. True. So hopefully they sync up. So Hidden Movement is a <laughs> game of hide and seek on a board. Usually there is one or more players that are uh, actual characters on the board that are moving around trying to find one or more players that do not have a piece on the board and are actually moving by writing down on a sheet or playing cards on the board. Some form of hidden way of moving. Pretty much right what it says <laughs> on the tin. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of those categories and one of those things that when you see hidden movement on a box, you know exactly what it means. So I'm going to be starting us off today, and I'm going to be talking about Spectre Ops. Spectre Ops was published in 2015 by Plaid Hat Games, designed by Emerson Matsucci, who also did some of the art, along with Stephen Hamilton, Chad Hoverter, and David Richards. Spectre Ops is a hidden movement game for two to five players, where one player is going to be the hidden player, and they are playing an agent that is breaking into some sort of facility in order to steal information, while the remaining players are playing the hunters trying to track down and capture the agent. The board is actually really cool. It has a kind of gloss finish and shows the facility. Uh, There are a number of spaces that have kind of a grid system on it, like A1, A2. Um, There are a number of other spaces that are unlabeled. Those are kind of obstacles that will block line of sight and can't be passed through. The agent's goal is to go to three of four possible access sites so they can get the information they want and then escape the facility. The hunters are trying to either kill the agent by dealing a certain amount of damage or preventing the agent from escaping within 40 turns. On the agent's turn, they're able to move upwards of four spaces and they chart this down on a little sheet that they're marking. The agent has access to some item cards that will give him various abilities such as blinding the hunters or being able to hide behind a stealth field to conceal his movement. The agent is also going to have some inherent abilities. There are four different agents to choose from, so the hunters will never know what powers the agent has access to until the first time they see the agent. Likewise, the hunters have four different hunters that they can choose from. 
and they each have their own unique abilities that help them track down the agent. If the agent's ever in line of sight to a hunter, uh, the hunter is able to attempt an attack on the agent, which is how they're able to eventually kill them that way. Killing the agent is usually the way, at least from our experience, that hunters will win this game. But like I said, the other way is for the hunters to kind of outlast the agent and have him not escape within 40 turns. Otherwise, the agent is trying to collect his information and escape through one of the three exits on the board. Something I simultaneously love and dislike in this game is all the special abilities. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I agree. I really, I really like having a hidden movement game where all the characters have different abilities and different cool stuff to do. But I have found a lot of the time, especially when you're trying to play the game with new people, so many of the abilities can be really clunky and get in the way. And a lot of scenarios were like, oh, wait, I don't really know if this worked right. Or, oh, I think I might have done this wrong. Or how exactly do I use this? And I think I actually stopped playing once in the middle of the game because we just kept running into so many of those questions playing with new people that I was like, uh, we let's just stop um, I, and then come back to it another day. I don't think that we stopped on our playthrough map, but I, t- I, I definitely hear and agree with most of what you're saying. Um, what was notable to me when Aaron was reteaching the game because I'd played it before, but not for a very long while. Um, and we taught Jameson, it was your first time playing, mm-hmm. I think. We were explaining all the different things, like the possibilities that could be there. And I, I think it's almost impossible not to tune out at some point because there's just so many possibilities. You're like, well, I, I can't keep this all straight because if they're this character, they may have access to these powers or they might have access to these general powers. And you really don't know what, what they're going to take, which as the hunter hunted, what what is the individual? Hunters. Hunters and agents. Hunters are looking for the agent. Okay, so as the agent... Um, that's a really cool element, I think, if you're playing as the agent to be able to pick and choose what powers you want to take into the game with you. As the hunters, who it would behoove you to know exactly what possibilities you could have, this is where a player aid could help immensely. Just a simple little player aid with these are the possibilities that could be in the game right now would be amazing. But for some reason, it doesn't include one. That would be very helpful game designers. Yeah, the, the lack of a player aid here was something that I really um, struggled with, not just during the game trying to remember what abilities did. That was a thing. Um, and at one point, I think you had to, Aaron, you had to like re-randomize your cards and then pass them all over so that we could kind of see them just to refresh our memory. But also just when the game was being explained to me before we start, I, I often appreciate having a player aid um, just to kind of familiarize myself with the, vo- with the vocab as we, as we go. Um, so there was this sort of a twofer here, both massive amounts of information that we I couldn't refer to easily as it was described, uh, and then also once I'm playing the game, I don't have access to that either. Yeah, the thing about this game is that the rules are actually very simple. Like, the base mechanics are really straightforward, but it's just a matter of having to know what those possibilities are, because if you don't know what some of those special ability possibilities are, it's game-breaking. Like, there's one of the agents that can actually access the uh, goals from two spaces away yeah and if you don't know that it's kind of gonna mess with all of your deduction abilities i almost wish that there was a way to play the game without the abilities or with slightly more minimal abilities just to kind of get into the game first and then kind of tack on more complexity with all the abilities that can be used but i i don't think as the game is you could strip the abilities out and have it be balanced in any way. Like, it, I think all the abilities help balance the game. 
but it's just a hard initial wall to get over. It's weird to me as, that as hunters, we don't know who we're hunting. That that element seems strange to me. I feel like you almost should know who your prey, like which agent your person just chose. Maybe not which abilities they've taken with them, but at least which ones they have access to. See, I actually disagree with that because I like that because it kind of makes a thematic element of like you're at this facility and this alarm has gone off and you know someone's there, but you don't know who it is until you first see them. Because as soon as the hunters make line of sight with the agent, the agent has to reveal who they are. Oh, I forgot that. That That is cool. Okay, I do like that. But um, it's also kind of gimmicky because usually you're going to get caught in line of sight within like the first yeah. few turns of the game. So it's like, here I am. It would just make the explanation phase a little bit simpler if you knew who was the that yeah. But stepping back a bit, I do like the game. I, I don't think I love it, but I do really enjoy it. I think it does hidden movement very well. It feels... I think the board in this game is really important. And I want to talk about it a little bit because I think the board lends a lot to the play style of the game. Like the board is very much set up that... The car starts, so you have a car, which we didn't talk about, I don't think, in the rules explanation that you sort of start in. And you can use it as much or as little as you want to as the hunters. Um, And the agent sort of has a starting area that you know they're coming onto the board from. So you have a little bit of information from the get-go. And from there, depending on how the agent chooses to use the board, it's set up that there's little cordons and pathways and like mazes they can tie within. Um, There's a bunch of really unique areas on the board that you can get into and sort of run around to. I think that's excellent game design just in that. I do think, though, it it hurts the replayability a little bit. And I'm, I know that they've come out with another edition, but I want to see what what's there beyond the board. Like I think the board design is what draws me most to this game because I like the world that it creates. Um, but I, I want it to do a little bit more, and I feel like this game kind of just doesn't do it for me in the actual gameplay. I agree with you on a lot of that because... I really like the theme of this game, and yeah, uh, one of like the small things is I, I know I've gone into conversations with this with other people that I feel that the agent is the good guy and the hunters are the bad guys, and I've had people that felt the exact opposite, and that's just like a small thing. So it's like so little. It's that to resistance do with it. feeling where you're yeah. like, you, I, I yeah. felt that way. I definitely felt like the hunters were the were the baddies. Yeah, yeah. Um, but going with the the board, I love the look of the board. Yeah, but. It gets in the way of functionality sometimes. Oh, so it does. Because I, I agree. It's so dark. Because <laughs> it has this this kind of sheen to it, which looks like really cool if you catch it in the right light. But most of the time, it makes it so you can't really see the yep. coordinates. Yep. Nope. That's, that's 100% right. So one thing about this game is that at five players, because it goes up to five, and there would be four hunters and one agent, it goes into this like... It goes into a variant at that point where one of the hunters is actually a traitor and is working with the agent. Reading online, reading different people's reactions to that variant, some people swear by it, some people really like it, some people hate it. I haven't tried it with the new edition's rules. Under the original rules, I really wasn't that big of a fan of it. What's the new edition change? So the first edition is actually Spectre Ops Shadow of Babel as the subtitle. And they came out with a new sequel version, uh, Spectre Ops Broken Covenant. Now, when you read the rulebook for Broken Covenant, it says that the rules 2.0 affects both versions of the game. And they do a couple minor tweaks that also change the traitor variant. In the original game, the agent knows which of the hunters is going to be the traitor. They actually get to pick which one gets to be the traitor, which is cool because you get to look at all their different abilities and figure out which one you don't want to have that ability and it lets the agent 
kind of lie. So when the trader hunter has you completely in line of sight, the agent's able to say, nope, you don't see me. But then if another agent comes in and all of a sudden you show up on the board, it's obvious to all the other hunters which one's the trader. In the original version, that hunter would then get one of the unused agent cards and just start as an agent that wouldn't be able to access uh, the goal points and just had to escape and could use items to kind of fight back against the hunters. But it was kind of clunky. In the new version, the hunters on the other side of all their hunter cards actually have trader versions. So whenever they get exposed as the trader, they have thematic abilities that actually very specific to who they are as a hunter and they play off of those abilities. And they're now allowed to access the goal sites so they can help the agent in achieving the goals. Well, that makes more sense. Mm -hmm. So I think they kind of balance that a little bit better. The other really nice thing that the expansion did was that it tweaked some of the original hunter's abilities. Yes. Because one of them had a very overpowered ability that then got tweaked in the expansion. And even if you just own the base game and don't have the expansion, you could probably just find the new version of the character online and just change those rule set for yourself. That was my character, wasn't it? The one that I recently the played with? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I I played the guy with the dog in the expansion character, and I honestly don't think I would have enjoyed the game very much at all if it hadn't been for the fact that I was moving two pieces around. I was kind of, I had this like fairly, not complex, but long reaching secondary set of abilities going on. Like there was a, another perspective that I was keeping in mind and I, it, it made me relevant when my character was stuck on the other side of the room that I still had the uh, other side of the uh, the board that I still had the dog to move around. One of my problems with hidden movement games in general is that by their very nature, they tend to be frustrating. They are designed, they're designed specific, I mean, it's, it's like Marco Polo, like the, uh, the natural state is very little happening or very little seeming to be happening. When something does happen, it usually means that one of the people is having a bad time. Um, games like this, I do think have a little bit, it, when there's more going on than just movement, it can become more interesting. And I, that's one of the things that I like about the ability cards in this game. But by and large, I think I would like this game less if I hadn't latched onto a character that negated one of my negative play play conditions that um, that kept me relevant even once I just got stuck way off in the back because I feel like I really just didn't do that much during this game generally you know in the course of 20 player turns or whatever you're kind of just walk as a hunter you're kind of just walking around and you might happen onto them and sort of be trying to to flush the the prey out but I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm not sure this is really a genre that I love anyway, but I also felt um, like this game did some things to mitigate it and keep things more interesting even when I was way off uh, position. I think there could be a pace issue with this game that depending on just kind of where the hunters go in the beginning and where the agent goes in the beginning, there can be quite a few turns where there doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on. But then if you catch the agent at the right angle, then kind of like everything hits the fan and everyone's kind of like running. But there can kind of be a, a a pace back and forth between nothing happening and then all of a sudden everything happening. I feel like the placement of the objectives in that area can create a lot of that problem too. True. And I think we actually, when we played, we had a pretty interesting placement for objectives. It was probably too favorable for the hunters or at least edgewise too favorable to the hunters but um i i I feel like if the roles had been different it might have been just a much less interesting game generally when i play this game as a hunter i will sometimes get a feeling of like frustration and being like oh i i can't figure out where they are they could be anywhere why can't i find the agent when i play as the agent 
I get a very stressed feeling of they are right on top of me. They are talking about where I am right now. I really hope they don't listen to Jameson. Go with Josh's plan because if they go with Jameson's plan, they are going to find me and I am screwed. And I kind of, I enjoy that because it's not too much, but it does kind of keep you engaged and keep you interested. I actually don't mind the looking around so much. For me, the frustrating part is knowing that in order to trap the prey, you need, you know, the, the two hunters or the three hunters or whatever need to go in certain directions. And one of those people will become irrelevant because of just how you're moving to flush them. Um, like on a chessboard, when everybody is managing 16 pieces, it doesn't matter so much that, you know, your pawn is going to be irrelevant for the rest of the game when you move him next to the knight or whatever. Uh, but with this, it, it felt more punitive just because in order to kind of put somebody in checkmate, I felt like we needed to flush you in a way that meant that one of us would stop being relevant. Or both of us would if we did it poorly. But Every time I play this game, though, regardless of if it's agents or hunters, it's always been very close. And I like that. I like that the game felt like either side could win and it wasn't overpowered in in one side's favor over the other. The balance of the game felt okay to me. There were things that I would like to see more and less of, but by and large, I felt like it was about right as far as the apparent difficulty for the hunter and the apparent difficulty for the um, for the agent. One thing I would have liked to see more of is the, the ability cards were very powerful, but tended to be um, kind of one and done things, or at least, I mean, the, almost all of them are once per game abilities. And while they can be huge, they can be a really big maneuver I kind of would have rather seen both sides having lower impact, persistent abilities, just to add a little bit more flavor there. I do think you're right, Aaron. I think the game has nice tension building towards the end of it. Like, I think if that's what you're looking for in a game, and you've exhausted other hidden movement games, you'd enjoy Spectre Ops a lot. Um, it's it's not my top choice of the, of the genre, but it is well done. There's no there's no fault that I can pick out for it except for little things. I think as the agent specifically, you get a really tense feel. Um, to your game. So I think if you are playing it, I would try and switch that roll up as often as you can um, just to share that feeling. I think, uh, here's a small thing, I think the miniatures look really kludgy and if it weren't, if if agent identity weren't so important and abilities weren't so uh, character specific, I would much rather have just like a a really basic, not even a meeple, like one of those little uh, clue-style pins that you put down. I would rather have that. They're crazy. Because they were, they're, they're just crazy. not good-looking figures. They really, really are not. You the just, dog's great. The dog is awesome. You just at some point need to stop looking at board game miniatures through a miniature gamer's eyes. Maybe. Maybe. We are not all going to pull our stuff off a sprue and then glue it and then paint it. And then... It doesn't need to be painted necessarily, but yes. I, I, will, I will say, though, there is something about those like chunky pawn pieces that I really find like aesthetically appeasing. Yeah, yeah, agreed. <laughs> the one thing I do want to caution people about with the sequel game, Broken Covenant, is that the first printing of the game, the board has a number of mistakes on it. And there's some people that were pretty upset about it. I was actually bought the game before finding out about the mistakes. I was going to return it. I decided ultimately to keep it. Flat Hat Games has sent out a sticker sheet that you can get for free in order to cover up the spaces. Like I said, the board kind of has that shiny feel that the stickers don't spot, also have. Spot varnish, I think. Spot, spot UV, I yeah. think. I was originally very against it. The only reason I kept the game is because I forgot to send it back uh, during my 30-day window, even though I packed it up because sometimes I just can't handle my life, people. But I did open it. I played it. 
I don't think that it's that big of a deal. I, I, I think the stickers do their job just fine. It really doesn't distract. It really doesn't detract that much. Matt, would you explain to us Nuns on the Run? Uh, yeah. Nuns on the Run is a game published in 2010 by Frederick Moyerson. It is designed by, or I'm sorry, the art is by Jared Blando and Jacob Chabot, published by Mayfair Games and is for two to eight players and plays in about 45 minutes. Uh, so Nuns in a Run is a hidden movement game. Most of the players will play novices, while one player will play the abbess and the prioress who are trying to capture the novices. The novices are the ones that will move secretly around a numbered gridded board by making notes on their piece of paper. And their goal is to get to two specific spaces on the board. The first space is a is a key that they need to open into a locked door somewhere else in the abbey. And then the second space is behind that locked door, and that is where a secret item is, something that the novice is forbidden for have. This could be anything from a cake, a love letter, to a secret book of, like, necromatic spells to summon the dead. <laughs> so, the, the little things in life that you need. The abbess and prioress are trying to catch the novices as they move secretly around the board. Something different about this game is that the abbess and prioress have to move on uh, fixed paths around the board unless they see or hear the novices. Uh, because at the end of every turn, the novices have to roll a dice to see how much noise they make, which uh, rolling a one could just be, oh, you rustled some leaves, uh, while rolling a six means you banged into a suit of armor while turning a corner and uh, the nuns can hear you halfway across the abbey and come chasing you. The goal at the end of the game is if you're a novice, you are trying to get get to your key, get to your secret item, and then get back to your uh, your cell. Once you're back in your cell, you've won the game. If you are playing the abbess and the prioress, you're trying to capture a number of novices equal to the number of novices in the game. So that means if there's three novices playing, you need to make three captures. That can be capture each novice once, or catch one particularly sloppy novice three times in a row. Or if none of the novices win by the end of 15 turns, the abbess prioress automatically wins. I haven't played this game in a while, and I forgot how great the artwork is and how many little jokes there are in there. It's a really, it's just a fun game. It has some edges to it. It's, it's a real experience, and I, I have a lot of fond memories playing this game with you guys specifically. Uh, it's been a while since I played it, and I do recommend it. I, I, I really I, like this game. I think calling experience is my favorite phrase you could have come up with, because I do feel like every time we get out nuns on the run, it, it does feel like an experience. Like, the setting's right, and everyone's like, yeah, we could... We could play nuns on the run. I'm I'm in the mood for it. Are you guys, yeah, I, yeah it's like ladies and gentlemen. That. Like there's just it a, is. It's a place it that, that we want to go same, back to. Um, <laughs> I, it's not heavy. It's not light. But there's something super thematic about it. And I I personally think it's the dice. I think it's the dice noise making sound that make me feel so immersed because that adds just the right amount of tension to the game that it doesn't feel quite like other hidden movement games to me. I, there's a little bit of element of the unknown. There's the noise tokens that are sort of directional. So. The abbots and the priorists know a limited amount of information, but you know that if you can avoid them long enough, they'll go back on their path. And so you can literally feel like you're a sneaky little novice hiding out there in corners. And 
I personally think the map is really interesting and really mm-hmm. cool. Like the layout of the Abbey is unique. The printing is a little bit less clear than I would enjoy for some of the doors. And I have a, f- a few qualms about the way things are laid out. But for the most part, I like going, oh, I could take the long way around or I could cut right across this middle corridor, but there's huge sight lines there. So that's really nerve wracking to do. Um, it, it lends itself to those thematic decisions very easily that I really enjoy in the game. So, yeah, the map is really cool, and uh, there's a lot of games where it doesn't necessarily make thematic sense for the same thing to be happening over and over and over again. Um, Even Spectre Ops, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily make sense that there'd be a raid on this particular loading yard or whatever repeatedly. But here, you know, you almost feel like this is something that happens once a week for these girls. Yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> it, it makes perfect sense for us there to get familiar with the corners of the Abbey. Um, you know, the, like, there are some little hidey holes, and there are some little places where you can get trapped. And, you know, the, here are places that are completely different during the daytime, but it, it just feels like a home. Um, I think my closest comparison would probably be to Clank, where you have, like, you know, you're going back into the old dungeon. You're going back in the Abbey. Speaking to that thematic point, I think that kind of justifies the mechanical, almost mechanical paths that the abbess and prioress walk because it's a nightly habit. They Mm -hmm. walk their same paths to check the abbey for intruders. So after studying their paths night after night, the novices know all their possible routes around the abbey. And once you know that, you now anticipate that and you start trying to sneak around that path. To one point Josh made earlier about the dice rolling nice randomness, something I love about this game when you're playing a full... <gasps> I know exactly, a full, I know exactly a, what you're going to say. A full thing of like six novices is when one novice makes a noise <laughs> who's not even near you. Well, you don't know where each other are, but they're not near you, but they make so much noise that the nun goes running after the sound but then turns a corner and you're standing in the middle of the path and you're the one that gets caught and you just want to like punch the other novice across the room and be like, you're the one that ran into the cupboard full of plates. Why am I getting caught in the hallway? I love that feeling. So one, this is one of the earliest board games that I got in my collection and I, it's, it kind of shows its age. There's some clunky things with it. There some, are. I, w- I want to talk about some of those in a bit, too. But. There's some clunky things with the line of sight and just yes. the mechanics of it. There's ways that people could completely throw the game if they knew they didn't want to win. It, if they knew that they weren't going to win so that they can have the seeker uh, win the game. But this game is just fun. Like, it is silly fun. I always laugh and have a good time when playing it. And the game tells a story of hiding in the confessional <laughs> for multiple turns for going from sneaking to running to sneaking to standing still. It's a fun experience that tells a story more than some other games that like really do try to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And blundering into other players like that. That is just hide and seek at a certain level. Like <laughs> it, it feels like a really physical game. Um, I, I don't know, like like you guys, I like this game a lot. I also like that the vices are so, like, there's such a spectrum there. Like, on the one, there's very serious drugs and, like, the Necronomicon. <laughs> and then at the, at the other end of it, it's like, I just want a letter from my mom, guys. Well, the one we kept, we weren't, the one, like, made the, um, the, the staff of this place seem like horrible people because it was a birthday cake. Yeah. But then someone figured out it was actually either the, um, like the prioress's birthday cake oh. that the uh, <laughs> novice was stealing from her, which makes that novice seem like a bit of a jerk. Cake for the abbess's birthday. Yep. Yeah. It, sa- it says it right on the card. 
Yeah. What, why did we do not notice that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. We thought it was that she was trying to get a cake to give to the abbess for her birthday. Which makes no sense. Yeah. But instead, she was trying to steal the abbess's cake. Yeah. Um, some, go ahead, Matt. I think something that makes this more of a story thing for us is that at the end of every game we play, we reset the yeah. board and then walk through it turn by turn to see where everyone was, especially in those games where you have a whole lot of novices. It's fun to sh- have everyone publicly shift their pieces around the board, and at some point you'll be like, oh wait, there was three of us hiding in the same confessional, and none of us knew we were in there, and we're all crammed in this tiny confessional together. Uh, I think that's what kind of lends part to the story, is that we we do that after-game check uh, just to see what kind of crazy things happened on the board. Yeah, I like that you don't know where your fellow players are throughout the game. It, it lends that sense of mystery. Um, one thing you do know, and I don't know if it's clear uh, to our listeners, but the paths that we spoke about earlier that the Abbas and the Priors take, they are printed on the board, and they get to pick which path they're going to go on. Um, so it's you have a general idea where they're going um, because they do reveal their path, but they get to start moving, I believe, before they have to reveal their path. So... From the outside of the game, you don't quite know where they're headed. So you have a little bit of unpredictability there. It's it's not as if you're a mechanical bull that has to walk along a certain track every time. And you do get to switch those paths later on once you reach the stopping point. So I Because I enjoy playing... This is one of those games that I enjoy playing both as the Seeker and the, the Heidi. The balance of this game is surprisingly well done. Because usually... There, when one of the novices wins, there was another novice that was about to win on the next turn. Like it's usually a race to the end. Mm-hmm. This is a game where it is possible for multiple people to win because you're all moving secretly. So on the same turn, two novices could move into their their cell and at the same time announce, "Oh, I won." I don't think it's happened, but it it's very plausible that it could happen. So let's talk about a couple of those things that do grade us about the game. Or the, as Aaron said earlier, the game does show its age a little bit. And I think some of the game design, it is difficult to teach. Like it is unnecessarily difficult to teach specifically because of the board and the line of sight rules. Like the game gives you a grid that sort of indicates to you what spaces can see which other spaces. And it's not the easiest grid to use. There's also like a sort of a ruler token that's in there, but you can't use it all the time because if it passes through certain terrain type and the, the board isn't really clear about where you can and can't see, like there are half walls printed in some of the courtyard spaces that you're allowed to see over, but then there's columns that you can't see around. Then there's like random little um, gardener huts that you can hide into that aren't. So you, every time we teach this game, there are a few spots that I feel like, you know, Matt or Aaron or I, whoever teaches the game is like, these are spots you can just hide in. Like, you should just know that these are safe zones, basically, from almost anywhere, unless you're in this one random spot. Um, and I imagine as a first-time player, that can be a lot to take in. We have played this game numerous times, but I feel like we know every spot on the board. Um, but that that does feel really clunky, and I do feel like there could be better game design. Um, the doors are also really unclear to see on the board. Like, the doors are these dark brown, narrow slabs, and it's not always clear what, what hallways, like, you can see up to a certain point, but there's a door here that you can't see through. It doesn't necessarily always make sense. And I think that's actually a really good place to jump into the comparison because it is crazy to me that Specter Ops in its sci-fi future combat uh, world has easier line of sight rules than cutesy little nuns on the run. 
Like, that's so weird to me because uh, that's the one thing I really like about uh, Spectre Ops line of sight rules is that it's so easy to figure out if you're seen or not. It's um, everything's very straightforward. There's the one possible thing that you have to remember is that the hunters don't check their line of sight until the end of their turn, but that's it. Otherwise, you're just looking in the four orthogonal directions versus nuns on the run that you do have some questions. And then sometimes we have to tell the player playing the um, Prioress or the yeah. Abbess to look away so that all the novices can talk about like if that's in line of sight or not. Yeah, because the Prioress and the Abbess, as they move, have to be like, do I see you now? Okay, I turn 90 degrees to the right. Now I see these spaces. Is anyone in those spaces? Like, it, It's not as just clean and simple as it could be. And it, it should be. Um, I wish that it were, but for some reason, it, you do have to kind of hold people's hands and be like, please pay attention now. You need to tell me if I can see you or not. Another point of comparison, though, that I will say is I like the use of power and ability cards in Nuns on the Run a little bit better than I do in Spectrops. I mean, the ones in Spectrops are far cooler, don't get me wrong, but there are ability cards in Nuns on the Run. I think they're called Wish cards. Yeah. Um, and they're just like, they're one shots. And the the crazy thing is that the Nuns and the Novice, or the, the Priors and the Novices share the same deck of ability cards. So they And they're always like, put a false noise token somewhere or you know, have a quick ability just to sprint a little bit further than possible or move undetected. And, and those just add just enough variety that it, it lends some unpredictability to what could otherwise be a very straightforward mechanical game. And I, I enjoy that in, in that. But that's about the level of, of that that I need, I think, in a hidden movement game. And they're very smooth, too. They The, the secret wishes, you have just one, you play it once, and it's not anything that's like overpowering or clunky mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's very well implemented. This is something I've been thinking about since, Aaron, you mentioned it when we talked about Spectre Ops, of feeling like the agent is the good guy. And I've been kind of mulling that over for a while as to what can make you think that. And looking at these two games together and I guess possibly other hidden movement in general, there tends to be one side whether it's the side with more people or less people doesn't matter, but one side that's more active in trying to stop something and one side that is active trying to make something happen. And I feel like that side that's trying to make something happen is the side you kind of side with as the good guys because they're trying to do something. Like, in Spectre Ops, the agent is the one trying to do something, so you want to side with them as opposed to the people trying to kill him and nuns on the run, the novices are the fun ones trying to do something, while the prioress is the one trying to stop them. I like your explanation a lot more than what the truth is. But what the truth is, is that I have consumed so much science fiction that I am convinced that the future is a dystopia full of totalitarian governments and mega corporations. So anyone trying to bring down the mega corporation and steal from them is the good guy. Well, I, I think I think Spectre Ops also plays on that. But I think it also plays with the more psychological, you want to side with the people not trying to murder yeah. the other person. <laughs> we don't know what that age is going to do with that information, though. Which game is more colorblind friendly? I think they're both pretty colorblind friendly, um, particularly because you actually, Nuns on a, no, Nuns on a Run kind of has a problem because the keys you're trying, you're, the keys you're trying to get are color coded, mm-hmm. but everything is labeled with a space number. True. Um, that every key tells you what space it's on for you to pick up, and the 
secret item tells you which space to pick it up from. And there is a weird rule in Nuns on a Run that you have to get the key that your card says, so you can't go through any locked doors. But once you have one key, you can go through any locked door. So basically all the keys are the same, so it doesn't really matter uh, what's going on the door. You just have to pay attention to the, the dot numbers. And uh, Spectre Ops, I'll use our favorite word for colorblind friendly, is just a muddy color mess. So uh, there's nothing to really mess up, I think. I like the Nuns on Run board. I like, I like the rooms. I'm a big fan of like labeling rooms. I think I think that adds to the thematic element too, and I think that's why Spectrops doesn't jive with me as easily as Nuns on the Run does for some reason. But maybe it's maybe it's old Catholic school bias coming in play. I like the non-pure grid nature of the Nuns on the Run board. True. I I like that everything isn't a perfect grid. I wish that it wasn't a perfect grid and didn't have the crazy line of sight problems that um which the line of sight in Run is only a problem when you're in the two outside cloisters other than that the line of sight works really well with all the different rooms that are in the game it's just those two spots and i wish i i like that all the rooms are kind of different sizes different shapes um and isn't a a perfect you know uh spreadsheet style grid mm mm-hmm. mhm so moving on to recommendations, we did not go back and listen to our episode one recommendations, and I'm curious how these are going to line up with those recommendations. My recommendation is for a game called Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space. It is a hidden movement game where everybody is playing a hidden player. Uh, some players are aliens and some players are humans, and everyone has these dry erase boards that they're drawing on and marking where they're moving. And the humans are trying to escape from escape hatches before the aliens can kill them and turn them into aliens. I don't know. This game kind of has some balance issues in my mind. I feel like it's so much easier to win as an alien or to be a human that gets killed and turned into an alien. But when you're actually able to win as a human, you feel like you really earned it. And it's just kind of a silly, fun game to play. Um, I recommend checking it out. Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space. My recommendations, I'm not saying the game that I really would highly recommend. I'm actually going to recommend a game that I haven't played, but have been. it's caught my eye several times and it looks amazing. Uh, it's called Princess Jing. It's a two-player game where you basically have a board um, and these little three-sided closet-esque spaces. Uh, but what you do is you move the princess and you try and escape the guards that are on your side, but you use mirrors. So like the backside of the little cabinets for little wardrobes, and there's mirrors that let you see different spaces on the board. Like physically, you can see in the mirrors if you can spot the princess peeking out or not. And it just looks really cool. So you're basically trying to to maneuver the princess around the board to get to her objective before the other person does, using these little guards and mirrors to basically like put corridors down that you can see all the way down and make paths. It, it looks adorable. And so that's my recommendation for my hidden movement game, Princess Jing. That's really unlike you to like a two-player Asian-themed game. I know, right? <laughs> it's so, so, it's so unusual. You. I can't <laughs> imagine it with a geisha theme nonetheless. Like, I would never like a game like that. Uh, my recommendation is something we've definitely talked about on the show before, Captain Sonar. Um, it's an eight-player game. There's two teams of four that are in submarines, and they're um, moving around the depths trying to annihilate each other. Some of the players are driving the submarine, and then there's a radar operator trying to figure out where the other submarine is. Um, there's all these little twists and turns that come up. Uh, it, it's lots of silly little mini games, but it's a really satisfying way of integrating a hidden movement 
into a, a, a game that is robust and in, in complete without just that part. It's also a great time. For it is amazing time. So my recommendation is going to be Nyctophobia. It is a new game that Josh, Aaron, and I got to play at Origins. It is a hidden movement game in which all the pieces are on the board because the uh, three people, it's a vampire versus some normal people, but the normal players or the people playing the humans, I guess, have blackout glasses on. So the board is literally hidden from you and you have to move around the board blindly. So even though all the pieces are on the board, it's a hide-and-seek game, and most people just can't see the board, while the vampire can see the board. Uh, so I would say it's a very unique take on how to hit and move on a board game. Case in point, uh, Matt threw a rock at me in that game. And almost killed dark. him. <laughs> was a great idea. I thought there was a tree in that direction. Yeah, I didn't me. realize that it was, was you. It was me. That game when we played it was crazy because I I never had a sense of what that board looked like at all because I was on a different nope. side of the board as you guys and yeah. I was like I couldn't put anything together as to how it was all fitting together and the, and the board is you you look at the board before you play and so you know how big the board is but then once you play feels it feels huge. like the board yes. is like hundreds of spaces yeah. big but it was like but eight then, by eight yeah it's but, so but, small but then when you take your glasses off you're like. Oh, we were all right next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> There's not really any space. We moved five spaces the entire game. Yeah. Pandasaurus Games is a great new company. Because now they, they have Dinosaur Island, they have Wasteland Express, they have The Mine, they have Nyctophobia. Like, I oh, have enjoyed mind, yeah. all of their games so far. So our bro- It's been one year, guys. <laughs> Woohoo! I, I am excited it's been a year. Uh, so this broader view is going to be very self-indulgent because we just wanted to take a step back and appreciate that we actually made this last for an entire year. Um, we are a group of people that have left behind so many different RPG campaigns after <laughs> session two. We are not good at that. Yeah, we are not good at keeping things going. So we just kind of wanted to celebrate that this is still happening. I mean, you're still playing Gloomhaven, aren't you? Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. I sold my copy the minute I saw it and was like, nope, this isn't going to happen. We really need to uh, get back to. Oh, pandemic. yeah, that Pandemic Legacy season two. We should really. Jasper that. wasn't born when we started. Well, no, he was. He was oh, very man. Young. You're right. Okay. It's been like eight months to be played a game. It has. I'm almost positive he wasn't born when you guys first started. He that. was not. I'm almost no, positive. Oh, he you're wasn't right. Born. It he was, was even not. before then. There was already a huge gap. And yep. then we played like yep. two more, you know, two months passed. We played again and we we're like, this is it, guys. We're going to do it now. And then another 10 months passed. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this podcast has definitely changed the way that I do things. Um, I definitely, when I play games now, I am always thinking about like, oh, what game is this game going to be good to talk about for the podcast? And that was kind of one of my fears when we first started this is that I didn't want gaming for us to ever become like an obligation. And yes, like we do have to like schedule time to get stuff in, but most of that's because we have busy lives. But I'm very grateful that it hasn't become something like that. Like every time we sit down to play a game, even if we use the dreaded phrase of we're playing this for the show, it's always fun. Like it's always us just like sitting around and playing something. Yeah. And I like that. One of our tenants was that we never wanted to 
play something that people didn't like. We always wanted to talk about the games that we'd like to play. And I think we've done a really good job of doing that. I never knew that that was one of our tenants. Oh. <laughs> we have tenants. That was in one of the very first. Yes. So when we first. I also didn't know that. When we were first like getting ready to Do launch this. Do you have this, a code book that the rest of us don't know about? I sent out. Like, <laughs> one of the first emails I sent out was just like my promises to you guys as to what this was all going to oh, be about. Oh, that was a year ago. I forgot. It's how over crazy. a year ago wow. at this point. Right. Because uh, I didn't want to, time is our most precious and limited resource, and I don't want to waste anyone's time. I guess I don't mind, like, I like talking about games I don't like as much as I like talking about games that I do enjoy. I think it would be one thing if I felt like I had to replay a game that I didn't like to talk about it, but it doesn't bother me to be like, I've, I have recommended games for episodes that I don't enjoy because I know it will be good to talk about. So for me, I hate learning new games. And for the last 12 <laughs> months, with only a couple of exceptions, every board game I played has been for the show. That being said, like I, board gaming is a hobby for me. It's not my primary hobby, but it's a hobby. This show is definitely like just forcing me to play a couple of new games every month has forced me. It, it's made me really reassess my enjoyment of it in a, in a good way. Um, having that rhythm and being forced to learn new things has actually exposed me to some stuff that I wouldn't, I definitely would not have tried if not for the show. Um, Eldorado and Fresco are two games that like, I really, really like and would definitely like, I would even consider buying them if I thought that there was any realistic chance that I would play them frequently with people other than you guys. And I, I, I remember playing Azula along, along the way, which I don't think we've actually done the episode for yet, but like, just having this dynamic, and I love podcasting, I really do. It's also, it's kind of reinfused board games for me in a way that I wasn't excited about them before. So even though it has almost been like a task, uh, it, it's been, it has been an obligation. I wouldn't have played these games if not for that obligation, but I enjoy them way more than I would have otherwise because of that obligation. It makes, it makes the whole hobby better for me. I can echo Jameson's sentiment that the podcast has helped helped me with my relationship with the hobby because if I didn't have the podcast to keep me engaged with new games coming out thinking about games and just going online and kind of doing that background work since I moved away from you guys and basically don't play anything ever if I didn't have the podcast to keep me engaged I would have no reason to care about board games anymore like it would just be a hobby because it is a social hobby. Uh, it's not like reading a book. I can't just pick up a board game and play any board game by myself. I think I would lose the hobby. Like, I think it would have gone away without having that social net to play the games with. And I'm definitely less into the hobby just because I can't play everything new that's coming out. But the podcast keeps me going that I'm not losing the hobby. Someone in Philadelphia, reach out to Matt and play a board game with him for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah, find him on Board Game Geek. Send us um, an email, menonboardpodcast at gmail.com. No, I, I agree. I think the podcast has changed my relationship. I feel really busy. Like, I used to have a ton of free time to do a lot of board game research, and I've scaled back quite a bit. But my buying has also, like, scaled down a bit, so I'm not as invested in the hobby. But this keeps me focused, and it gives me a reason, because I think with renovating a house and the stuff that I'm doing right now, I wouldn't have I don't have tons of time to play right now. So this at least gives me a focused time every month to say, okay, sit down, think about this, 
play a few games like it really gives me a reason to hang out with aaron not that i don't hang out with you otherwise but it, it at least is like okay this is this is an obligation that you committed to and it keeps me focused on it i i appreciate that the playing is less casual like i need more casual play time which i'm looking forward to because i miss playing games um but summer's just busy in general yeah the podcast has been really interesting it it gives a voice to things that are going on in my head when i'm playing a game that don't have an occasion to come out during play because it's not when you're playing a game it's not always the time to be critical it's not always the time to be reflective it's not the time to tear apart and nitpick and things and we do that privately and we always did that even before we started the podcast but this gives it a voice and gives it a home to say okay here's here's a space to talk about some of those things that we like dislike could see improved and to just interject really quick before jameson um meeting our fans at origin and by fans i mean fan still though <laughs> was the most validating thing ever for this podcast like knowing that there were people out there actually listening to it made me go oh this is really cool now i'm super excited about it well technically we met two fans because tim that gave us the stickers oh, now yeah. listens to the show and cool. always retweets us and we appreciate you tim um, I was just going to say that we the podcast wouldn't exist if we weren't already having those conversations, though. Like, yeah. this podcast grew out of Aaron recognizing that we did get really nitpicky sometimes, and we really did like digging this stuff apart. Um, and he thought, oh, we should start recording this and then impose this extremely specific format on it. <laughs> I think the podcast has helped me temper my opinions about board games, that having to think about it in terms of what I'm going to say on the recording... I really give thought to if I really dislike something, I try to think, well, what are the positives of this? And if I really love a game, I try to look at it more critically to be like, no game's perfect. Like, every game has to have faults. And because if I'm listening to a podcast, I would like to know that, it helps temper my opinions. Like, ha- hearing someone in on, about anything... But hearing someone gush totally about a board game isn't helpful. Like, it's helpful to a point, but every game has some pitfalls to it. So I try to temper my opinions about the things I love, but I also try to temper the opinions about things I don't like because I know there's someone out there that likes the things that I don't like, so there have to be selling points about that game. And I think the podcast has helped me be less extreme both ways. And I... For me, I really like that, and I like that that's that's a big positive to me. I like, so when I was first conceptualizing all this, I picked out which friends I wanted to be a part of this just because I knew that the four of us would all have very different points of view for the things that we talked about, which would give us hopefully interesting things for other people to listen to. Uh, For me, the podcast was just a way to focus the fact that I spend way too much time reading about this hobby, buying games, playing games, researching games. Whenever I am interested in something, I'm either not interested into it or I am way overboard into it. It's just the way that I've always been. And it's, yeah, it's nice just to have something to have a product to show for that. I mean, I have like my game collection, but I just think that this, this podcast has just been so much more than that and just being able to have it and to have this outlet to be creative it really means a lot to me and i love that over the last year i think all of our friendships with each other have really changed in a really wonderful way i love that we have this so that we can i can talk to matt and i can see matt 
Um, True. Which is awesome. And I'm so glad that we have this, that Mm -hmm. we can keep, because I am terrible at long distance friendships. And I don't, I, I feel like Matt's just right here with us. And I really appreciate that. That is true. I also gained a new appreciation for the reviewers and people that I watched and listened to on Board Game Geek because I don't physically know how they have the time to play and conceptualize and test all the games that they review. I like I know how hard it is for us to find and schedule time to play a game, and I know those people have families and kids, and th- this is just crazy to me. Like I, I can't imagine any more gaming time than what I have right now. And I see reviewers come out with six, seven, ten reviews a week. Or like, it's unbelievable how huge the hobby is and how much space there is within the creative content in the hobby. And I really like being a part of that. Jameson and I, we we talked about before how we work together, and like sometimes our work can get very, very heavy um, and deal with stuff that can just like stick with you. And I love having this hobby and this podcast to keep me grounded and to give me something else to think about yeah i mean i i became friends with aaron because of board games as much as anything else and we've always kind of like when we're when we're being friends we're either being friends thinking about work or thinking about board games most of the time and it is really nice to have this as an alternative outlet because all my other lawyer friends um with the exception of the one that i married like we have a a very specific tone even though we're really not talking about um legal issues specifically like it has a the conversation generally has a really cynical feel um and i think we one of the reasons that aaron and i can avoid that is just because we're dealing with games like nuns on the run and ladies and gentlemen and we're dealing with with an escape and that's really nice and really healthy i think just a completely different landscape to have these interactions on I do remember the first time we sat down to record, and I was genuinely concerned that we weren't going to have a good product. Like, I didn't know how it was going to work. Because we, the four of us are extremely different, and we all have, like, we're almost archetypes. But we that's that was how this was before it started. Like, we're extremely different. And when we recorded those first couple episodes, and, like, I could just feel the chemistry, and I was so excited about doing more of it, uh, I really enjoy doing the show with you guys. Real talk about once every like five days, this just gets like overwhelming, and I'm like, oh, there's no way the podcast like the podcast is probably done. Like, yeah, it's probably, over. <laughs> we've probably recorded our last episode, yeah. And then like later on that day, I'm like texting like a million ideas of like what we should do next episode. <laughs> Something I really like that's a positive that I guess maybe I was afraid of it in the beginning, or maybe I'm just making up that I was afraid of it in retrospect is that after 27 episodes, after a year of doing it, we have gotten better at, well, slightly better at not talking over each other and knowing how to interact with a podcast, but our tone hasn't changed. No, not at all. We we still talk on the podcast the same way we would talk to each other outside of the podcast. Our attitudes are the same. Probably a lot less swearing. But beyond that, our tone is still conversational after all this time. We haven't gotten very formal. And that hasn't, and in retrospect, the other way, like going the other way, it hasn't made our outside of podcast talk formal. We're still, we still just treat each other the same way. And I think there was a little hesitancy in the the beginning of like, are we going to become slight colleagues and are we going to start talking to each other the way you talk to colleagues sometime because you're going to an, like, at quote, office to do something? But that never happened. 
it's just sitting down at a table and we happen to be taping our conversation. And with that, I think we will end our taping of conversation for tonight. Uh, thank you to everyone that's been with us for this last year. Hopefully you'll stick with us in the years to come. Join us in two weeks where our category is going to be escape rooms. We're going to be comparing the exit series of games with the unlock series of games. Our music was provided by the band Delicious Pastries. If you'd like to email us, you can reach us at menonboardpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at menonboardpodcast. Find us on Twitter at menonboardpod. We have a guild over on Board Game Geek. Our website is menonboardpodcast.com. Thank you for listening and good night. Night, everyone. Good night. Bye, everyone. So we have, let's see here, this is our 27th episode, over 26 episodes, four game recommendations an episode. We've, we've now recommended over 100 games. That's crazy. We need more. A lot of them are the same. Though. I, like, yeah. at least... I was going to say it might be more like 70. Yeah, Jameson's recommended seven. Most of them were Blood Rage. <laughs> True. Uh, Twilight Imperium True. comes up a lot, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but not as a recommendation. I just talk about it every episode. I don't think there's been a that episode was... where I haven't. Josh, you brought it up this episode. It hadn't been brought up until you just said it. I wasn't no, even on the episode. Where we you brought guys up the minute. Jameson brought up the miniatures in Twilight oh, Imperium. I did. You're right. Oh yeah, that already <laughs> happened.